Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Joshua chapter 7 today. I'm going to walk through a very um, difficult text, a difficult passage of Scripture. Ask God to teach us this morning uh, about the nature of sin. You may think, man, here we go. Matt's preaching on sin. Uh, that all preachers like to do is to preach on sin. Well, I don't know how you can be working through a book like Joshua and get to chapter 7 and not deal with this issue of sin. And so instead of trying to get around it, we're just going to grab onto it and head straight into it. Uh, six truths this morning, I think that chapter 7 of Joshua teaches us about sin. Um, six truths, we're going to start, number one, in the first five verses, it becomes apparent to us immediately, the real problem with sin. So number one, the real problem with sin. Look at the first five verses. You've heard the conclusion of this text as Wally has read to us, but let's get to that point and see what has happened In chapter 7, verse 1, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And so Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Beth-El, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out I. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up, from, uh, went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of I. And the men of I killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as uh, Shabarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now there are a few ways this morning that we could preach this text, but that we will not be preaching this text. In the first five verses, as we've we've read now, uh, you could already be seeing the the red flags of overconfidence, right? You could could see that in the way that the spies come back and report. Uh, It's tempting to build a, a sermon here or a lesson about rushing into things in life and being too confident in ourselves, in oneself, in our own abilities, So you could say that the text is presenting us with a negative example of what happens when we trust ourselves or in uh, a negative example of overconfidence, right? Or you could say the text is teaching us the problem of of having a, a, a poor prayer life, lack of prayer. That it doesn't show us Joshua or any of Israel uh, praying in the text. And so obviously they didn't pray and so that's obviously why they failed. You could say that it's a lesson for us that if you pray, you won't fail. That God desires us to meet with him in prayer before we make life decisions. But the reality is we don't know whether Joshua prayed or not. And then on top of that, further, we, we don't really know if, if, he, if he did pray or if he didn't, if the result would have been any different, if the battle would have went any differently had he prayed or, or not. And so you ever hear someone say, well, that'll preach. <laughs> well, those two points, you could build... 30, 40 minutes of, of, of content about the idea of being overconfident or uh, the, the, the command, the charge to have a healthy prayer life. But that's not the main thrust of the passage. That's not what's going on here. And so you may hear that and think, well, Matt, what is the main thrust of this passage? What is going on here? Great question. I'm glad you're paying attention and listening, asking good questions. Let me give you a hint. The writer mentions it as bookends in the chapter. So in chapter 7, you see it in the first verse, verse 1. It's our first book in. 
Verse 1 says, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And then you get to verse 26, the last verse in the, in the chapter, the other bookend, and you see, then the Lord turned from his burning anger. And so the anger or the wrath of the Lord, language that we don't hear in culture very often, maybe even in a lot of churches nowadays, but the anger or the wrath of the Lord is the key for us in this chapter. They didn't fail because of overconfidence, because they sent too few in their army. They didn't fail because of a poor prayer life. They failed because Yahweh's anger was directed toward them as a result of their own sin and failure and disobedience. And so this coincides with what we've seen in the beginning of Joshua. As we've studied chapters 1 through 6, the River Jordan was not their biggest problem. The Amorite people, the Canaanite people, and all of their armies, armies of giants, the first group of, of, of spies said, they were not their biggest problems. The walls of Jericho, last, not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem, and we've said this almost every week, their greatest problem was their sinful heart, was their temptation and, and bent towards disobedience and covenant breaking. And so last week we, see, we saw what, was, what seemed like an impossible task, the walls of Jericho, an impenetrable city, miraculously defeated because of obedience, because of God's power and protection. This week, what seems to be a given, right? They didn't even send their whole army, all their troops, results in destruction because sin was in the camp. And so the question for Israel from the beginning for them in this text and for us today is, will they, will we trust and obey God? Will we take him at his word? Will we do as he's commanded us? As his people, will we live under his authority? That's the question for Israel. It's always been the question, and it's the dilemma that we see in our text this morning. Uh, Jackman, in his commentary, says something very similar. He draws out this idea of battle. He says this, The walls of Jericho fell flat because Israel's God, um, because of Israel's mighty God. Israel didn't have to overcome her enemies by force, by arms, by military prowess. Yet there was a battle raging in Jericho on that day. And that battle was within every heart of every Israelite person, the battle to keep trusting God and observing his specific detailed instructions. It was a battle that Achan lost in a spectacular way on that day. And so the same is true for us. The real problem with sin, with our lives, the temptations that we face, the real problem with sin would not be the consequences of those choices or actions. Uh, an example, if you, if you murder someone, uh, your biggest problem is not that you'll face life in prison. Your biggest problem is that the wrath of God burns against you. If you commit adultery, your biggest problem is not that you could get caught and your family uh, would leave and you would lose your family. Your biggest problem is that the wrath of God burns against you. And those are just two examples, the two big ones that we often think about, murder and adultery. But the reality is, the scary thing is, is that the same anger of God, the same wrath, burns against those sins, but also burns against pride that may be lingering in your heart. Burns against a flippant tongue. You may say something without thinking and hurt someone. It burns against an impure thought or a little white lie or an unkind word. The wrath of God burns against sin. And then the depth of sin is not determined by its consequences, though they can be terrible. Uh, the, 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 the depth of sin is not determined by the impact that it has on those around us, which can also be terrible. In this case, in Aiken's case, 36 men died. The, the depth of sin is not determined, though, by any of those circumstances. The, the, the depth of sin is, is the reality is that the holy God, that a, an almighty God, has his anger directed toward us because of our disobedience, because of our choices, because of our sinful actions. And we, in ourselves, have no way to stand under that weight. That's the reality. And so, number one, we see the real problem with sin is that they, they, they were burning under the wrath of God, that God had directed his wrath toward them. 
the second thing we see, the second truth we see, uh, not, not just the real problem with sin, but we see the right question in dealing with sin, the right question in dealing with sin. Look at verses 6 through 9 as the text continues. So they, remember, they've just been defeated. Uh, they tuck tail and run. 36 men die. They get back, verses 6 through 9. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. And he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought us, brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Watch how Joshua responds here. He hits his knees in prayer. He bows his face before the Lord, verse 6 says. He and the elders, and they, they tear their clothes and they put dust on their heads. This is an expression of grief, grief, of mourning, of humility here, but not necessarily repentance. Remember, at this point, uh, Joshua, in this point in the story, has no idea of what's happened. He has no idea that there's sin in the camp. We as readers have that understanding because the, the narrator has given us in verse 1 that this is the problem. But Joshua doesn't know that yet. Uh, he's just broken that he lost 36 of his men, and perhaps even more, he's broken. He's grieving the loss of Yahweh's presence. Now, to this point, that's been a given, right? As we've studied through the book of Joshua, uh, we've seen nothing but the Lord surrounding Joshua with his presence and affirming it to him in numerous ways and crossing the River Jordan and in speaking to him and, and affirming that he's now the new leader and, uh, and, and the, the commander of the Lord last week in chapter 6 coming to him and, and, and affirming that, that, uh, that he's with him if he'll obey. He's been nothing but present and now Yahweh's presence is lacking and he mourns over it. God, what did we do? And you watch this string of questions that Joshua throws out. Uh, in an effort to gain understanding of his situation. Look at verse 7. Alas, O Lord God, what, why have you brought this people over the river Jordan at all? To give us to our enemies? Is it, was it your purpose to bring us here just to destroy us? Verse 7 again. Another question comes up. Would that we had been content to dwell across the Jordan? Would it have been better for us if we had just, just stayed on the other side of the Jordan where we already had a little small piece of land? Would it have been better to stay there? Were we greedy? Did we miss you? Did somehow we, we get ahead of you and, and do, do the wrong thing? And then you get to verse 8 and he asks this other question. Oh, Lord, what can I say? Uh, what, why, why, when Israel's turned their backs on their enemies and they're running, all, all the nations around are going to see this. What can we say before you? His questions here are a mixture of grief and perplexity and accusation. It's actually a pretty good reflection, I think, of our hearts when we don't get things that we want, when things don't go the way that we had planned that they would. And note this, these are words of despair, but they are not words of disbelief. Now, there's a huge difference there. They're certainly words of despair. He's pouring his heart out before God. He's a broken man, but they're not words of disbelief. His concern here, Joshua's concern here, is different from Israel's complaint in the wilderness. Now, if you remember back, it's been a while, but Numbers chapter 14 and Deuteronomy chapter 1, Israel complained against the Lord. They were groaning and belly aching, and the Lord uh, punished, brought, brought... his wrath and disciplined them. Joshua complains here to God in prayer, but he doesn't complain about God here in prayer. There's a difference between uh, complaining to God and, and complaining about God. And in some raw and genuine way, I think complaining to God is a demonstration of faith, right? 
I mean, I mean, think about this. If, if you believe that he is the only one that can actually do anything about your circumstances, that he's the one that's sovereignly in control of everything that's coming into your life, then you pouring your heart out before him shows, God, I'm trusting you. I know I have nowhere else to turn but you. And you see this. You see that he's trusting God here. And you really see it in his next question, which is the right question in dealing with sin. His final question in this string of questions is the right question. Verse 9 says this, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And here it is. Here's the big question. And what will you do for your great name? Yes, his question is reasoning. It's questioning, but it revolves around Israel's peril. But there's a deeper issue at stake. Not only is he concerned with Israel's peril, it's question in verse 9, what will you do for your great name? In other words, all of this was for you. It was about you anyways, God. We're your people. You're the one who, who made this promise and set your blessing upon us. And if we're destroyed, what about your glory? What about your name that you said you were going to carry to the nations? Now, this is all for you. What will you do for your namesake? This is the right question. It's the right perspective to have in a moment of confusion, a moment of doubt, a moment of uncertainty, a moment of sin. This is the right perspective. And we may cringe at the sound of this, right? Like it just seems a little bit man-centered, maybe even a little bit childish. Really? His name revolves around us? His glory revolves around his people? I mean, we want to almost kind of push back against that. But there are certainly times when we stand with Joshua in solidarity with Israel. We have no idea what God's doing. We have no idea what he's doing around us, nowhere to turn. And so like Joshua Perhaps even in anguish and prayer, we plead both our danger and his glory. God, I don't know what's going to happen here. It looks like I have nowhere to go. But for your name's sake, will you do it? I'm a part of your people. You've said that you would lead us. So do it for your name's sake. We cast ourselves at his mercy. We confess our dependence. We remind God of his promises to us. Not because he needs a reminder, not because he's forgotten, not because he's weak and needs us to prompt his memory. We remind God of his promises so that we hear it and it washes over us again and again and again. God, you've promised, you said you would do this for your namesake. Think, think about uh, even, even Desmond, which I say his name right now and he's sitting right here so I know the risk of saying his name right now uh, is that he would make, talk back to me. Um, but but if, I, if I tell him, hey buddy, go clean your room, and as soon as you finish cleaning your room, we'll go outside and ride the four-wheeler. Now, when Desmond goes and cleans his room, and he runs back to me excited, I've cleaned my room, Daddy, I've cleaned my room, and you said we could go ride the four-wheeler. Now, in that moment, I'm not mad, I'm not offended. Even if I did actually forget, I'm not, I'm not mad that he went and reminded me in that moment. And In fact, I'm, I rejoice that he heard me, that he, that he listened to me, that he was obedient. That, that he comes back and he, he tells me of, of my promise, my end of the deal. Because it shows that he trusts me to keep my end of the deal. I rejoice in that moment. How much more so with our Heavenly Father who has never forgotten, nor will he ever forget, forget nor will he ever let down on his end of the promise. He's a perfect father. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't get angry with us and us asking him to remember his promises before him. He delights in keeping his word. He delights in remembering his promises. What will you do for your namesake, God? You've said you would do this. That's the right question because it centers around the most fundamental truth in our existence. That all of this, all of us, were created by him and through him and for him. And it's all for his namesake anyways. Do we trust that? Do we trust that? Number three, we see the relational impact of sin. The relational impact of sin. Look at verses 10 through 12. 
The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them in their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Before we go any further in the text, we need to identify, we need to consider whom are the objects of God's anger here, of his wrath. We sin, here's here's the truth that we need to hear. We don't say this enough, we don't think about this enough. When we sin, it's our consequences. Uh, We're such an individualistic society, an individualistic culture, that we never think about this aspect of sin. Now certainly we will suffer the consequences of our sin, but there are consequences for us when you sin. And this is the reality that we're shown in the text. As quickly as the chapter begins, you go back to verse 1. If you look up at verse 1 with me, you see this interplay between the one and the many. Look at verse 1. The people of Israel broke faith. That's plural. For Achan took. That's singular. Talking about Achan. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. It's plural again. And so immediately you see this, this interplay between the one and the many. Then you get to verses 10 through 12 that we just read. And you see the, the just, just piled on top one after another. Look at, look at the text really, real quick. I'll give them to you bullet style. Number uh, Verse 11. Israel sinned. Plural. Again, verse 11. They transgressed. Plural. They have taken. Plural. They have stolen. Plural. They have lied. Uh, they put the belongings with their own. Plural. Verse 12. Uh, Therefore, the people cannot stand, plural. They turn their backs, that's plural. They have become devoted for destruction. There's a whole lot of plural language in these two verses, but let me ask you something. Who actually did these things? Did every person in Israel steal? Did every person in Israel lie or take something or hide something? No, Achan did those things. Then why does God talk about it as if all of them did those things? That all of Israel is guilty, that his people have transgressed the covenant. Because there's an element of corporate solidarity and sin and judgment that we usually fail to consider. There's the, there, let me just break that. I mean, that's a heavy, heavy a corporate solidarity. This is what that means. When you sin, our consequences. When I sin, our consequences. Don't think for a second that your sins are only your problem, that they don't affect those around you. Can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Well, preacher, that my sins are between me and God. No, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. While you will have to answer for your sins, your sins are between you and God and everybody around you. That they have an impact upon your family, upon your home, upon your workplace, upon your your spouse, upon your children, upon this church. Your sins are not just between you and God. Notice, too, where God starts in this accusation, verse 11. Notice where he starts. Verse 11, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. He starts with the heart of the matter. He didn't start with, they took They stole, they lied, they hid. He gets there. The end of verse 12, you see the specifics. He gets there, but doesn't start there. Why? Because these are just symptoms of the greater disease. These are just symptoms. These are just the the way that this sickness is playing out for Israel. The taking, the stealing, the lying, the hiding. They're just indicators of a heart problem, a heart issue. And that's where he starts with Joshua. They've transgressed my covenant. That's the problem. They have wayward hearts. And it's fleshed itself out in that they've taken, they've stolen, they've lied. Israel's transgressed my covenant. And this is our problem too. Now, sin shows up in our behaviors, our words, our choices, the, the things we do that are, that are against what we've been commanded. But they're really indicative of a deeper heart, heart issue. That we're humans that have flesh wrapped on us and we need the Spirit of God to change our hearts, to give us new hearts. We're violators of God's covenant. 
We sin because we are sinners. And one commentary says this, Is it possible, is it possible that the apparent absence of God in various segments of the church may be due to our unwillingness to purge evil from our midst by the costly exercise of church discipline? True, the church exists at a different time, hence it does not execute the death penalty, but the necessity of discipline does not cease because the form of exercising it has changed. Then he says this, our problem, so often today in the church, our problem is that we prefer the tolerance of men to the praise of God. God forbid that would be said of us. That we would look at sin and just sweep it under the rug so that we wouldn't have to deal with it. God desires us to be a holy people before him, and our sin has consequences on each and every one of us. I sin, it's your consequences. And we need to remember that in every decision we make. That's a grace of God that he would give us the church so that as we're sinning, we can think about what impact is this going to have on my brother sitting in the pew beside me or my sister sitting on the pew beside me. So number three, we see the impact, the relational impact of sin. Number four, we see the mercy of God in his answer to sin. The mercy of God in his answer to sin. Look at verses 13 to 15. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, uh, for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Here's the thing. God doesn't just stop with telling Joshua the broken situation for Israel. He doesn't just stop with telling them their peril and their destruction. This in itself is an undeserved grace. He could let them run headlong into complete destruction, but he would not leave them there. He doesn't leave them there. He remembers mercy. A mercy that's only visible, though, in the demonstration of his wrath. He remembers mercy by demonstrating his wrath. Let me say it a different way. God's able to show Israel mercy by demonstrating his wrath towards sin. And some of you may be thinking, well, that is really unfair. That's really unfair. What about Achan? What about his family? What about his livestock? It's unfair that they receive no mercy. How come Israel gets to receive mercy and they don't? No, friend. No, friend. Fairness would be that God would judge all of Israel right then and there. That he would allow all of them to be devoted to destruction just like he did the people of Jericho. That's fairness. If they really want to get what they deserve, that's fairness. But God's mercy is that he's he's showing them, he's demonstrating grace towards them in that he's demonstrating his wrath. Israel can be forgiven, made right before God. He's made a way for that to be possible here. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, your heart should begin to flutter when you hear this kind of language because that's precisely what happened on Calvary for you and for me. God demonstrated his wrath towards sin in that Christ died. And through the demonstration of that wrath toward Christ, he's able to show me and you mercy. That's the gospel. That's what we celebrate every time we sing, every time we see baptism, every time we gather as the people of God. That he demonstrated his mercy because he long ago on a hill called Calvary demonstrated his wrath. And none of that's fair. That's why it's called grace. Fairness would have all of us in hell. Grace is that Christ experienced hell for us so that we can be recipients of mercy. That's the gospel. And God's not doing anything here in the Old Testament that he would not later do to his own son to show you and I mercy. 
It's an early picture of what's going to happen in the gospel. It's a shadow of things to come in Christ. He's going to demonstrate his wrath so that a bunch of rebels get to be counted free. Number five, fifth truth we see. We see the progression of sin. We see the progression of sin, and we're going to camp out and spend a little longer on number five and number six because I believe they're a direct, immediate application for us. Verses 16 through 21, the progression of sin. So you see Joshua's been given this command and how to sort out the people and to find this one who's hidden the devoted things. Verse 16, so Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites man by man. And Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man. And Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So I was reading this text this week. This question just struck me, and immediately I couldn't get away from this question. Why this long process? Why would God do it this way? God knew the offenses. He knew what was done. He knew the offender. He knew who, who took the things from the very beginning. God knew what was, what was happening. He knew who the one was who was guilty. So why not just reveal the offender to Joshua and avoid all the theatrics? Why not just get right to the point? I believe the answer has two, I believe the, the question maybe has two answers, kind of twofold. One, it goes back to our last point, that the whole nation of Israel was implicated in one man's sin. They were all guilty before the Lord because of this disobedience. And though only one family will suffer the punishment, God deals with the entire nations as they're all objects of his wrath. He's demonstrating that to them. He's showing them that corporate nature. But number two, I believe God's demonstrating his mercy here, even in the process for dealing with this progression of sin in Achan's life. And to, to get that, I think you have to see it from Achan's perspective. You imagine his perspective as you read. You know that you violated the commands of God. You know you've broken his commands. That's why when you stole it, you went and immediately hid it and lied about it. You knew you had done it. You knew you were guilty. And then you hear the plan. Joshua tells you this plan. They're going to narrow down the people one by one until one family is left. And then as that one family is left, there's going to be one man standing. And you've seen the power of God. You've watched him literally dry up a river in front of you. You've watched him collapse walls that shouldn't have collapsed. You know he's powerful. You know he has the sovereignty to use this method to produce the culprit yourself, right? And so the tribes start coming forward. You can imagine the intensity. His, his heart beating fast as Judah is selected. That's your tribe. Your tribe has just been selected. Then the clans of Judah begin to present themselves, and it's getting closer to your, your tribe. And I mean, your clan. And, and, and then the, the Zerahites are selected, and that's your great-granddad. I mean, great-grandfather has been selected. Your uh, clan has been selected. And then the families from that clan begin coming by. And then Zabdi, your grandfather, selected. I mean, think about your own, your own family, your extended family. Your grandfather's family is the one standing before Joshua. And at this point, you're a nervous wreck. Because you know the next step is for each man in that household to, to present himself. And you know that you're about to stand before Joshua. But more importantly, the holy God that you've already watched do incredible things. You can imagine how he must have felt in that moment. And then it's your turn. And you begin to proceed to go before Joshua. And you know your guilt. You know it's about to be uncovered. If he's narrowed it down to your household, you know it's not a further thing for him to narrow it down to you. Can you imagine the intensity, that decision that that caused, that moment when he stole those things, and now he's thinking about those things, and the 36 men that were killed because of his decision, and his, his household that's now on display in front of the whole nation of Israel, all because of you, all because of him. 
And the writer of Joshua is giving us this description in this way. It seems long and tedious to describe it in this way in the text, but it serves a purpose. It demonstrates to us the mercy of God. That this entire process, there's zero confession from Achan until it's wrung out of him. That in all of this process, there's no apparent remorse, let alone repentance here. And this is perhaps the the purpose behind Joshua's exhortation in verse 19. You see, he speaks to him almost like a father would speak to a son. My son, give glory to God. Praise, praise him. In this moment, what have you done? Don't, don't hide it. What have you done? It's almost like it's, a, it's an appeal, even at the last moment, to confess his sin rather than, and, than to deny it and to cast himself at the mercies of God. But there's no room for that in Achan's cold admission. He just says what he's done. There's no, there's no remorse. There's no, there's no repentance here. It's just an admission of guilt. It's a cold and hard heart before the Lord. And in it, we see this progression of sin. This is where we need to lean in this morning because I think there's application for each and every one of us in this progression that we see in Achan's uh, admission of guilt. Look at verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak of Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Watch this progression in the text and think about your own life here. Allow the Spirit of God to to uncover your heart right now. Verse 21, I saw something I wanted. He names those things. I coveted those things. I took them and then I hid them. It's all in one verse completely laid out for us very neatly in a very neat fashion and it's the devastating progression of sin in each and every one of our lives. It's the same for you and me today. You can apply this to to adultery or gluttony or pride or materialism. Anything you you, you want to under the sun that's a sin before God, you can apply this progression to it. We see it, we covet it, we want it, so we take it, and then we try to cover it up. This is the same progression you see in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. The fruit, they saw it, they desired it, they coveted it, they took it, and they tried to hide it from God. They tried to hide from Him. Covetousness here is the root of the problem for Achan and for us. Think about it. Simply seeing the spoils of war, that was, that was not the problem. All of Israel saw the devoted things. They saw the, the silver and the gold and the, the nice little robe that he wanted. They saw that stuff too. It was the second look. Hmm, it'd be nice to have that. Maybe I could take it for myself. Nobody would notice. I think I'm going to do that. It's that covetousness. It's that, that sin that begins to brew. That, that temptation moves to desire. And then we take and then we hide. We try to cover it up. Because that's the only answer at that point. Either you confess it or you cover it up. It's the same progression in our lives. And this is where the battle happens with each and every one of us. It is what I see and what I desire that will determine what I do. I'm going to say that again. It's not mine. I don't even know. I've heard it somewhere, but I couldn't even find the author. We should write this down because it's this progression in our lives that leads to sin in our hearts. It's what I see and what I desire that will determine what I do. And here's here's the grace of God to us, that he gives us tools to mortify sin at either step in this process. Think about this. What we see, what we desire, will determine what I do. So he's given us tools to change what we see. If you're putting stuff into your brain, through your eyes and through your ears, you can turn that junk off. You can remove yourself from those places. Give us tools to fight that. Secondly, change our desires. What I see, what I desire, leads to what I do, determines what I do. He's given us something to change our desires, namely himself. That when he becomes the object of our desire, our desires can change away from those things that we're so consumed with. 
wish we could dig in more here in, in your growth groups this week and Sunday school classes. Have conversations about how you're doing with your eyes and with your desires, with the things you're seeing and the things that you've set your heart upon, things you're running after and chasing after. Are we prepared to let God be God at this precise point in our lives, to have his way in our hearts and change our eyes and change our desires? For Achan, the answer was no. For Achan, a Babylonian robe and silver and gold mattered more to him than the word of God, what God had commanded, and the glory of God that he was set to display, that he was supposed to be displaying as one of the people of God. His objects of desire were the idols of his heart. The things that he saw began to consume him. They're the things that he buried under his tent. And if we were honest before the Lord this morning, if we really just were real with the Lord this morning and let him do business in our hearts, what shrines would the Lord find buried deep inside of us this morning? We just said, God, search me. God, use your word and use your spirit and search my heart today and point out anything that I've tucked away, that I've hidden in my heart that I might be wanting to keep for myself. What would he find? How dare we point the finger of self-righteousness at Achan when we know the struggles in our own hearts? Number six, number six, we see the severity of sin. We see the severity of sin, verses 22 through 26. Let me read for us. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all of the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord, and Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and his donkeys, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all of Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire, and they stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the valley of Achor. Here we see the severity of sin. It's not a laughing matter. It's not something to be taken lightly. Our culture takes sin so lightly. Sadly, the church takes sin so lightly. In a a D group right now uh, with a couple guys reading through David Platt's book, Follow Me, and he gets at this idea of sin and its seriousness and our perspective on sin uh, really well. And so this is is an example that he gave in that book. And so if it's helpful, um, Platt is the one who, David Platt is the one who wrote this. He says in the Old Testament, we see severe punishment of sin much more so than we do in the New Testament even, and, and certainly more than we see in our lives, the immediate uh, punishment or judgment for sin. He gives some examples. Fire rains down from, from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah, destroys that, that place, completely annihilates it. But God allows Lot and his family to, be, uh, to, to flee. They're instructed to leave, but not to look back. And you remember what happens when Lot's wife looks back. She immediately dies. Another time, God commands his people to rest on the Sabbath, It's a law that he's given them. Not long after he's given them the law, a man is caught picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Picking up sticks. And God declares that he should be stoned to death. Uh, Achan, in our text this morning, and in the text that we just read, is stoned to death for keeping plunder from a battle. Spoils of war. Uh, Nabad and Abihu are, are, in the ten, are in the tabernacle, and they, uh, uh, they offer up unauthorized fire. In other words, a, a sacrifice that was not allowed, and they're consumed because of it. God tells Israel not to touch the Ark of the Covenant. You remember this is a rule, a command that he's given them. And it begins to fall one day. And so Uzzah reaches out and tries to to keep it from falling. And he touches it and he immediately dies. We hear those examples and Platt says this. We read stories like this in the Old Testament and we walk away confused. Isn't God supposed to be a God of love? And aren't these punishments a bit severe? Annihilated for looking backward? 
Uh, stoned for picking up sticks, consumed for one wrong offering, killed for an inadvertent touch? He says such questions reveal a fundamental problem with our perspective. We naturally view sin through man-centered eyes. The reasons we, we, we wonder that these punishments are overly harsh is because we can't imagine ever responding that way if the offenses were against us, right? When people disobey us or do something that we've asked them not to do, we don't conclude that they should die. He says, yet yeah, the penalty for sin is not determined by our measure of it. Instead, the penalty for sin is determined by the magnitude of the one sinned against. If you sin against the log, you're not very guilty, right? Sin against the log, no one's coming after you. You sin against a man or a woman, you're absolutely guilty. If you sin against an infinitely holy and eternal God, you are infinitely guilty and worthy of eternal punishment. In Malaysia, as we're witnessing to Muslim folks, we use this illustration um, often. Often you'll ask a Muslim person, we get into a taxi, right, in Malaysia, and that's one of the ways you share the gospel is you go everywhere in a taxi and an Uber ride, and you begin to talk to the taxi driver. And what you find is that in their faith, they believe that you would ask them, and they would say, well, yeah, Allah may send me to hell, but after I'm there for a while, I'll work off my sin, I'll pay for my sin debt, and then I'll get to go to heaven. So even if I don't get to go to heaven immediately when I die, I'll get to go there one day when I work off my sin. And so then you respond with this, with this question, well, right now, just imagine, right now, if I, if I reared back and slapped you in the face, well, what would happen? And they kind of look at you kind of funny and kind of laugh, kind of chuckle, if they have a sense of humor, which you hope that they do when you ask that question. They laugh and kind of say, well, I'd probably throw you out of my taxi. You say, well, what, what if I went up to a random person on the street or my buddy right here beside me and I slapped him? What would happen? I said, well, he would, he would probably slap you back, and he'd probably get all his buddies to come and beat you up. So, well, what if I went to that, that square right over there and slapped that police officer standing right there? Well, he'd probably slap you back, and then you'd probably get thrown in jail. You'd probably go to jail for slapping a police officer. And then finally we'd say, well, what if I went up to the prime minister, the most important and most, impo- most powerful person in all of Malaysia, and slapped him across the face? What would happen? It gets real serious. He says, well, no question, you'd be shot on the spot. You'd be killed immediately. You use this opportunity to explain your your understanding, the severity of sin. That the punishment is always a reflection of the position of the person sinned against. If you slap me, I mean, we might get the blows, but that's about it. You slap the prime minister, you end up dead because of his position, because of his power, his authority. Friends, if you sin against an infinitely holy God, the penalty for that sin is death. That's what, we, that's what we see in Achan's punishment. When we hear of what happened to Achan and his family and his livestock, our knee-jerk reaction shouldn't be, man, this is harsh. Our knee-jerk reaction should be, man, that is me. If not for the grace of God, if not for Calvary, I deserve that same punishment. Achan's story has to end in the gospel that we travel back to Calvary and we see upon Calvary's hill a sinless Savior nailed to a cross. He's dying as our representative, as our substitute. If he doesn't die and rise again in three days, then we're doomed to the same fate as Achan, except for eternally so. That's the gospel. We don't suffer the penalty due us because Christ has suffered it for us. What a Savior. What a Savior we have. And he invites us today to call upon his name, to confess our sins. Not like Achan once you get caught, but to come before him and say, God, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of your grace. Would you save me? I trust in Christ's finished work on the cross, that he died in my place, a sinner's place. I confess my sin and call upon you today. Will you be my Savior? And he promises he'll do that. 
Oh, he's a good God who's faithful to do that. Will you call upon him today? And here's, the, here's another grace of God, and we don't have long to spend here, but the grace of God is just grace upon grace, even in a text like this where it's, it's hard and you see a family dying. The grace upon grace is that he gives us symbols to remember these things by. I mean, think, about, think back to Gilgal. The, the Israelites just come through the River Jordan, and they, they're instructed to pick up stones out of the middle of the river and to erect a monument, a memorial, on the other side, on the promised land side of, uh, of the River Jordan at Gilgal so that they can remember the Lord's power. They can remember his miraculous provision of giving them life, of keeping his promises. And now, the same language that it's here to this day, language that you see in both scenarios, you see a memorial of stones erected upon Achan's dead body and possessions and family. It's a memorial of the consequences of disobedience. And so God gives these gracious reminders to us of life and of death. And that's exactly what we see in baptism. As Mally comes and is baptized a little bit later, you're going to see that, a confession that I was a sinner. I was separated from God. This was death. It's a memorial of death. But I died to, I died to myself. And, and in Christ's resurrection, I'm given new life. It's a memorial of life. It's a grace that God would give us this ordinance to see that. That he saves. He brings people who are dead to life again. That's what we'll see in just a moment. So let's prepare our hearts for that. Let's pray together. And then we'll respond to the text. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that even in hard texts of the Old Testament, we know you're a good God who is long-suffering and patient. And though you would have been completely right and just to destroy the entire world, even at Adam's sin, even at Noah's, uh, the flood, and the way that you've protected and preserved a people for yourself, even in the flood, God, at any point in human history, you could have completely destroyed all of us because we're guilty and we've sinned against the holy God. But God, the truth is that you're a merciful God and you provide mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace for those who call upon your name. And so God, if there's one here today that's never done that, God, I pray today would be the day of salvation that as they, as they hear of the weight of their own sin and the weight of your anger and wrath burning against them, that they would trust you. They would trust your finished work on the cross, Jesus, as salvation. Escape from the wrath of God. So God, we give you this time. We pray that you would stir in our hearts. For even those of us here that are your people, we've called upon you. God, we know that we still have flesh and we still run to things. We desire things. We see things and want them that are sin. So God, as we reflect on your word, would you, would you convict us? By your spirit, would you identify places in our hearts and lives that are, are sinful? Help us to be quick to run to repentance and to run to grace daily. We give you this time. Pray that you would work. It's in Christ's name I pray.